Okay, salam alaikum everybody. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to an amazing Saturday session. We are going to tackle Surah Al-Nisa today, which is just mind-blowing, um, especially coming after all the big surahs that we've done previously. Um, I just uh, I wanted to share a couple of things. Um, you know, one of my, one of, I've talked a lot about how I'm a news junkie, um, and I was sort of, um, now I'm sort of a recovering news junkie, so trying to, like, keep it balanced, because um, it's hard to really dig into the news and see what's happening, but um, one of the things that we do around here on Thursday nights before um, the khutbah is we scour what's happening in the world, um, and that's something that is very helpful for Sheikh to, um, you know, get a pulse on what's happening and what he might want to address in the khutbah. So we often, you know, we'll go and find tons of articles. Um, usually, you know, we, we find a bunch for him to cull through and he'll pull out the things that strike him that he wants to talk about. Um, one of the things that um, was really interesting to me is I, I used to uh, watch this show, I think I've mentioned it before, uh, called The Rising on the Hill Channel. Um, it used There used to be a show that, or it used to be hosted by two people. Um, their names were Crystal Ball, actually, that is really her name, um, and Sagar um, and Jetty. And they were very interesting because, you know, they're independent. They were um, both uh, coming at the same um, issues from a populist perspective, but one was a, de a Democrat and one was a Republican, and they were very deeply embedded in the Washington, D.C. scene. So they had very interesting insights, especially when Trump was still in office and, you know, when we were looking towards the election, um, alhamdulillah, to get Trump out of office. So after, um, after that stint, they actually left the Hill, left the show, The Rising, which they started, and started another show called The Breaking Points. And um, so their show, The Rising, was then taken over, um, or you know, hosting-wise, um, by Ryan Grimm, who I really respect. He's from The Intercept, and he uh, does a lot of writing on The Intercept page, um, which is, again, a wonderful independent news um, you know, media um, and that we've talked about here before. Um, and then also a woman named Kim Iverson, and there's a third man, too. And so I really had not been watching um, for a while. Um, what was going on with either the breaking points or rising, um, just to get a break. But recently I was curious, you know, the last time I talked about this, um, this billionaire who um, was speaking about how no one cares about the Uyghurs in China. And so I became sort of curious um, to see what the coverage was like, especially in independent news media. And I started watching um, this woman, Kim Iverson, and Ryan Grimm on The Rising. And I, you know, saw some interesting coverage about COVID and, you know, Dr. Fauci and all this kind of stuff. And then um, they, I think it was this issue about the billionaire. And I was really shocked. Um, you know, these are smart people. Um, when Kim Iverson started going off about how she didn't actually believe that there was a genocide and that she hadn't seen the bodies, she hadn't seen the evidence. And so it was a really shocking thing when, you know, we're very attuned to how much evidence there is out there, how well documented, all of this stuff, to hear someone who is supposedly, you know, I mean, maybe they're not independent, maybe they are corporate, I don't know, I'm not, I need to kind of look into that. But it was shocking to hear someone so blatantly deny this, you know, that there is a genocide, that there is something going on. And even Ryan Grimm himself was saying, you know, well, they, they tried to describe it as a cultural genocide. Again, really shocking from where, where we sit. And so that made me curious to search some more, you know, go back and look at um, 
breaking points with um, Crystal Ball and, and Sagar, and I'm like, okay, well, I wonder if they are actually supportive. And so when you do a search and, you know, you say, okay, China, what do they talk about? Honestly, it was extremely difficult. I think they really, they, they didn't ever speak about the Uyghurs except in reference. I mean, I guess the good thing is that they referenced the genocide. They weren't deniers. But at the same time, they didn't talk about it. And then they, you know, would talk about, um, you know, people like Mark Cuban, who is, um, or they, they, I guess, interviewed him or they commented on, on some comments he made. Um, Mark Cuban is the guy who was on Shark Tank. He's um, a billionaire. He's very well known. I think he owns, like, he's part of the NBA or something like that. So people who, who know of him, um, you know, he's a pretty influential guy. I think he was going to run for politics. Anyway, he made a comment about how um, he doesn't have a problem doing business with China because China is a customer. And, you know, yes, he does, you know, human rights work in other categories. And so it's, you know, this clearly this hypocrisy. He tries to set himself out there as a human rights person. But when it comes to China, you know, business comes first. These are our customers. We have to do what we have to do. So, it, you know, it's a really, um, it, it's, it's such a dark picture. And then when you layer on top of that the things that are, you see in the news, so, you know, if you didn't have a chance to watch the khutbah yesterday, um, some of the things that, that the sheikh talked about were, you know, clearly, obviously, the genocide is going on there. But then the call, you know, the, the alarm bell sounding about the genocide about to take place in India. So, you know, and not, you know, on, on top of that, all the genocides that have previously happened, Bosnia, you know, the, with the Rohingyas in Burma, um, and, you know, Palestine, all countless places, right? So it's, it's just um, really disturbing. And then when we sort of dig into some of the news that we're able to find, there were some reports that came out, you know, some journalists did take it upon themselves to follow the money and do some, you know, um, some investigation. And there clearly are people that are invested in and investing in uh, genocide denial in China. So it's so disturbing at every level. Um, and I guess, you know, when you reach this point of, okay, who, you know, the billionaire who said nobody cares about Uyghurs, you know, as I said, the irony is he was actually being truthful and he got slammed for that. But there is a truth. People don't care. They don't even want to report on the genocide. In fact, they would love to set that aside so people can just focus on profit and money with China. So all of this then brings me back to, okay, what is it that we can possibly do? When people are so easily able to even deny genocide and deny all of the evidence that is coming out, um, you know, from interviews with people who have been in concentration camps to, you know, investigative journalists who have taken pictures, satellite pictures to see, you know, the size of the concentration camps getting built. When you see how mosques in, in China, you see pictures of how they're completely empty now. Um, and then just the horrific stories. Um, it, it is it is really shocking. So, um, Thankfully, actually, um, there, you know, one of, I, I just wanted to highlight, um, someone wrote me a really nice message, um, very grateful for the work that we're doing, grateful for the chutbahs and the halakas convert, um, and said that he was interested in possibly putting together um, like a website to collect <clears throat> a lot of information, like at least collect the news articles that we reference um, for the chutbahs that Sheikh gives every week. 
And I thought that is a brilliant idea. At least if people are hearing the chutbahs, they want to read more. You know, certainly when we talked about suicide and addiction, people were asking, you know, can you please um, give us the links and give us the references? And so, you know, we provided that online and also in my weekly email. But I think that, you know, it's a it's a one, you know, example of what each individual can do to make a difference, right? Even if it's like putting together a website where we collect these relevant articles. Um, and it, it reminded me of like our experience um, with Islamophobia and with the articles that would often come out. You know, the, the, I don't know if people are familiar with this group called Campus Watch. It's part of Daniel Pipe's Islamophobia network. Um, it's very integrated into um, academia, or it was much more so maybe when we were, you know, when classes were back in person. But effectively, whenever um, this Islamophobia Campus Watch Middle East um, uh, I think Forum is, is Daniel Pipes' group, um, when they would identify these top um, academics who, you know, were either um, on the wrong side of Israel, you know, that issue, or, you know, people that they didn't like, generally people who were, you know, human rights oriented and, um, you know, spoke on behalf of Palestine and things like that, um, they would s recruit students um, who of the like mind to go and sit in on the classes of the problematic academics and report back if they said anything that, you know, was offensive from, from their point of view. And oftentimes when, um, when the sheikh would talk about an issue or talk about Sharia, or talk about Islam, or talk about anything that they found offensive, he would get written up promptly um, in one of their articles. And um, so this is when they would identify him as like the stealth Islamist, or they, you know, would comment on something happening in his life. Um, and interestingly, you know, if you follow, like, this, an article would appear on their Campus Watch, like, site, and, you know, I would track them on, like, um, you know, Google, like, you can do Google Alerts, so anytime something comes up, you can see where it shows up on the internet. Very interestingly, every time an article would come up on Campus Watch, within a day, that same article would appear on a huge number of other sites. And it was a clear flag as to how many of these websites were actually connected because they were all running the same article at the same time by the same author. So if someone actually took the time to identify what these sites were and flag them as Islamophobic, you know, that would be very important for people who were trying to understand, you know, the, the broad reach or network of Islamophobic sites. But learning from the enemy, we could actually go a long way in creating our own network of sites so that we could share this type of information that is actually powerful, that could actually, you know, help people arm themselves with knowledge that's useful to speak out against Islamophobia, return the gaze, and so forth. So I throw that out there as a, you know, as an idea. I mean, people are always asking, what can I do to make a difference? You know, if that's something that you would be interested in doing, I think that would be extremely powerful create a network of pro, you know, beautiful Islam um, to counteract the Islamophobic narrative. And, you know, and to, to add on to that, you know, I'm always so, like, um, excited when I hear, you know, something in the halakhas, something that Sheikh talks about, even the opportunity to, um, you know, return the gaze, like when we learn about Bible study and what things are actually saying. You know, there's so many nuggets of information where, you're sitting in the halakha and you go, oh my God, if people only knew this, this would be so powerful. 
Well, I think that this, you know, there's a huge opportunity if someone is interested to take those kinds of gold nuggets and, you know, turn them into bits of knowledge that can be, you know, um, weaponized really to fight Islamophobia. And we try to do that with, you know, quotes. We have, you know, wonderful um, social media team that, you know, will go and call some of these really powerful quotes and share them out on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and whatnot. But that's something that really can be amplified. And the more we can build that, the more we can make an impact. And again, that then brings me back to the khutbah that Sheikh gave um, some months back on artificial intelligence and how artificial intelligence calls the information from the internet and throws back at you what it finds and how shocking it was that anytime you would input something that had to do with Muslims or, or Islam, what would get thrown back at you was some kind of narrative of violence or you know stereotyping or something ugly. So obviously, we as Muslims need to populate the, the world out there, the internet, with more positive narratives, with more truthful narratives that can actually start to counteract that balance so that you know AI which is used in everything from you know banking to education to every part of our world you know can start thinking of muslims as human beings as opposed to terrorists and sources of violence so just to share those ideas with you thank you so much for being with us i'm so excited for another fabulous evening um i think that um, obviously, um, Surah Nisa is a long surah, and so hopefully we will be engaging with this surah for a while. Um, unfortunately, it looks like this Tuesday we are not going to have a halakha because, as you know, Sheikh has, um, you know, a, an incredibly um, overburdened semester teaching classes, doing a lot of um, work for UCLA, and um, a lot of other things that have jumped on his plate. So unfortunately, um, you know, we, we will just have to, to be grateful for whatever session we have. Um, so I just want to highlight that right now. Um, and inshallah, thank you again for being with us and I look forward to an amazing session. المرسل رحمة للعالمين خاتم الأنبياء والرسل أجمعين وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن تبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين so, um, Surah Al-Nisa, uh, you know, it's, it's one of these surah that um, you, uh, there's a certain sense of, of um, stress in presenting it and maybe um, anxiety because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a complicated it's a uh, not complicated, but maybe sophisticated um, uh, surah that raises um, a lot of issues. And inshallah, I, I pray that I do it justice and that Allah helps me um, communicate what I need to communicate. So, um, 
the vast majority of sources agree that it is a Medinian surah. That's perhaps obvious points, although we do have these interesting narratives that that place some of the ayat in Mecca um, pre-Hijrah, which d doesn't make sense and it's not supported. But anyway, and again, like most surah in the Quran, uh, we have these interesting narratives that will say, um, well, it was most of it was revealed at such such time, but this ayah or that ayah was revealed years later. And you know, I don't exclude that possibility. Um, it is possible that an ayah is revealed. Uh, five years after the main body of the surah is, is revealed and then the Prophet ﷺ instructs that it would be added to Surah Al-Nisa. It, it is possible, but uh, then the question becomes why is it a part of Surah Al-Nisa, right? That still, I mean, the, the, uh, what I've referred to in my writing is the authorial enterprise. Well, why does the authorial enterprise identify this as a cohesive unit as Surat al-Nisa. But um, there are further things that one can talk about. So we know the, the, the evidence is cumulative and, and convincing that Surat al-Nisa is revealed after Surat al-Baqarah and it's revealed after Surat al-Umran. And uh, after Surat al-Infal, Baqarah al-Infal al-Umran. Um, and we have a, a good number of reports that say that it was revealed right after al-Umran. But interestingly enough, we have reports that claim that Surat al-Nisa was revealed after Al-Umran and Al-Ahzab and Al-Mumtahina. And as we will see, inshallah, when we, when we cover Al-Ahzab and Al-Mumtahina, um, that's very unlikely. Um, inshallah, as we'll talk about, in all likelihood, Al-Ahzab is not until the 5th century Hijrah or around then, um, and Al-Mumtahina is even later. It's not until the 7th century Hijrah. While Surat Al-Nisa is very likely to have been revealed in the fourth century, I'm uh, sorry, fourth year, not century, but four, fourth year, Hijrah. So, Nisa is most likely the fourth year of Hijrah, while Al-Ahzab is on the fifth and Al-Mumtahana is on the seventh. We also get into some interesting research questions, whether you have Surat al-Hashr, Surat al-Saf, 
and Surah Al-Munafiqun, these three, which seem to have been revealed so closely to Al-Umran and so closely to Surah Al-Nisa itself that there is this question, is it possible that Al-Hashr, Al-Saf, Al-Munafiqun were revealed before Surah Al-Nisa? So, or were they revealed shortly after Surah An-Nisa? It's this is a, a, a this could be a very long conversation if you go if you're studying the reports you know report by report by report. Um, and I I mean, but I would say that. There is there there is a good chance that between Al Umran and Al Nisa, especially Al Munafiqun and Al Saf, especially these two swore, could have been revealed before Al Nisa. There is a good chance that this happened, but that because of the nature of Al Saf and Al Munafiqun, which we have not talked about yet. Um, that doesn't have an impact on studying Surah An-Nisa and comprehending Surah An-Nisa. What is significant, what is significant is that we have Al-Baqarah and Al-Umran, these two main Surah, most certainly were revealed before in Nisa, and what is significant is that on all likelihood, an Nisa was revealed either right after Al-Umran or shortly after Al-Umran, either directly in, in consecutively after Al-Umran or perhaps um, after an, an intervention by either As-Saf or Munafiqun. But as I said, that wouldn't have a huge impact on on uh, on the the functionality and the 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 message and the purpose of Surah An-Nisa. Pivotal to studying the Quranic narrative is that. The heart of Surah An-Nisa deals with the contextually, it, it addresses or it talks about um, those who had converted to Islam but had failed to migrate to Medina, as we will see, inshallah. And it speaks to them and speaks to them directly. And we know that the issue of Muslim converts who had remained in Mecca and did not convert and did not migrate to Medina remained 
an active issue around the third third Hijra or fourth Hijra, the third year Hijra and fourth year Hijra, especially during the events of the Battle of Badr and the Battle of Uhud, and that eventually this issue, the Quran doesn't talk about it as much anymore, and the Quran shifts the focus um, on more press, pressing and present issues like the role of the hypocrites in Medina. Um, and this helps us, again, play, you know, understand the, the narrative and the, 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 um, uh, pr the progression of the Quranic narrative itself. Perhaps in style, Surah An-Nisa resembles the most Surah Al-Baqarah. Although what it does is different. As we inshallah will see. So on the one hand, Surah An-Nisa has a number of positive legal rulings, like Surah Al-Baqarah. And like Surah Al-Baqarah, these positive legal commandments are interlinked and intermingled between a sort of a discourse that ebbs and flows that talks about belief, that talks about nifaq, hypocrisy, that talks about, that responds again to Christians and Jews, and that, like Surah Al-Baqarah, uh, rebuts the idea of a chosen people in a variety of ways, inshallah, as we'll see, and that also rebuts the idea of um, a, a, the, the idea that that Allah would would send anyone to sacrifice themselves for the sins of human beings as at odds with the very idea that Allah has created a test for human beings. So as we will see inshallah that well if if Allah if the if Allah created us and endowed us with qualities of divinity and ultimately, a, although the point of creation is that so we will come to know our creator, but as an essential component of that divine quality of voluntarism or choice is the test of so that Allah will see what we will do with what Allah endowed us with. The idea that Allah would then send a son or whatnot to carry this, to sacrifice themselves, to, to vindicate people, to carry 
people to carry people's sins as fundamentally at odds with this whole notion of purpose of creation. Um, you know, if 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 the point is the test to test you, then what is what is the point of sending someone to take the test for you? Um, and so, again, in Surah Al-Nisa, we'll see that it engages in this dynamic, and we'll see that it, like Surah Al-Baqarah, it engages in in positivistic legal commandments. But Surah Al-Nisa does it with a a a shift in objective and purpose that is consistent with the stage of Medinian society, Muslim Medinian society, and that exemplifies ethical lessons that we will we will talk about, inshallah. If I would summarize, also Surah Al-Nisa is, you know, called Surah Al-Nisa women. But we will see a consistent theme in Surah Al-Nisa. And that is the theme of empowerment. Or put differently, the Quran uses the expression al-istidaf, and istidaf literally means to render someone weak and helpless. So to disempower someone. And because they are disempowered, you are able to do a variety of things to them. And the the um the spirit of Surah Al-Nisa, inshallah, as we'll see, is that to be a believer and at the same time disempowered, oppressed and weak is is a is an, a condition that is ethically obnoxious to Islamic purposes. And there are indications in Surah Al-Nisa, although as we'll talk about, Surah Al-Nisa poses the, the, the sort of the methodology of narratives, perhaps more than any other surah in the Quran, because there are indications that with the migration from Mecca to Medina, women have, were, as, as in the state of any society under siege, when a society is under siege, um, the privileged find their privileges challenged. And among the privileges that are challenged 
when you have this nascent young society under siege are the privileges of men and the various traditional uh, privileges of patriarchy. And as long as society is settled in its ways, well, there's very little occasion to challenge settled privileges. But what occurs with the migration from Mecca to Medina and what occurs with what goes on with, with the, the surrounding environment, the environment that surrounds Medina, including the hostility of the Meccans and other tribes and so on, and what happens with Jewish tribes within Medina, and what happens with the hypocrites in Medina, is that this is a, a, a dynamic process in which all types of traditional privileges are being questioned. And so we witness an, a, a, a clearly increased enhanced role for women in Medinian society. And women are pushing back against many of the traditional privileges and we see evidence of that in the tradition itself. But as we see evidence of that in the tradition itself, we also see that the way that this, like all uh, contested, heated issues, that the way these traditions are narrated and communicated to us, preserved in history, is hardly straightforward and objective. Meaning what? Meaning that if you have traditions that give you an often contradictory and complicated picture of historical reality, what the way that you analyze these traditions is you are also examining tensions within these traditions. So, and as we will see over a variety of issues, when it came to slavery, there are tensions between those who are trying to hold on to the old order and those who are embracing the changes to the old order. When it comes to the issue of women, those who are trying to hold on to traditional misogynistic institutions and those who are conceding that the, that the old ways are not going to work anymore. Whenever we have hotly contest, contested issues in history, especially issues relating to sectarianism, pro-Ali against Ali factions, 
issues relating to slavery, issues relating to women. The historical narrative is not, not surprisingly at all, is not clear and transparent. The historical narrative is often complicated. And so paying attention not to an isolated area, sort of taking an area out of its context, but paying attention to the entire narrative of the surah and the the ayah placed within the surah, and the surah placed within the Qur'an, and the Qur'an placed within the entire message of Islam is very important because otherwise we are stuck at the citation games. You know, someone will find a tradition that favors their subjective biases, and so they'll cite it, and someone else will... Uh, you know, cite a counter tradition, and we we're stuck at this tradition versus counter tradition, and we never go beyond because we don't look at a we don't attempt to look at a coherent ethical normative picture. And Surah Nisa, as we'll see, I mean, it just you can't avoid it. It it. It's a very powerful example of this reality um, and so on. If, if this is unclear to you or if you didn't understand everything I've said, it's okay. It will become clear, inshallah, as we go through the Nisa and I give you the, the various examples Um and again, like Surah Al-Baqarah, unfortunately, it's, it's, I can't skip too many ayat in Surah Al-Nisa because to understand the moral message of the Surah, it is important that you follow the... Um, the details of the discourse. It's follow that you... It's important that you pay attention to the specifics of what Allah says and and when and why. Okay. So, it is very significant that Surah An-Nisa starts out. with a penultimate statement that grabs our attention and sort of readies us for everything that's going to follow. Ya ayyuhal nasu, taqu rabbakum, alladhi khalaqakum min nafsu wahida, wa khalaqa minha zawjaha, wa batha minhuma rijala kathira wa nisaa. وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ الَّذِي تَسَاءَلُونَ بِهِ وَالْأَرْحَامِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ عَلَيْكُمْ رَقِيبًا As we will see from Surah Al-Nisa itself, 
This will come later. But there is no question from the evidence of the text itself, the revelation itself, that this is a period of considerable tension and demands on the young Muslim nation. Post-Uhud, as we said, you know, how close to Uhud was it? It's not quite clear, but, we, you know, we're talking about months. In, in all situations, we're talking about months. And there is a significant opposition party, which Surat al-Nisa will talk about, al-Munafiqun, and a significant other opposition party, the Jewish tribes and Christian individuals in Medina, and an external threat. And yet, the beginning of Surat al-Nisa doesn't start out by saying, Ya ayyuhal mu'minun, doesn't address itself to believers, it addresses itself to humanity at large. Ya ayyuhal nasu taqu, rabbakum. All of humankind We've talked about the expression a taqu or a taqwa. Be ever conscious of your Lord. And we said a taqwa is to be, Allah is ever present in your mind. You're ever conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, first, we pause here for a second because of a, an, an interesting debate in the Islamic tradition. Most of the... Um, most of the traditional or traditionist tafsir say that what the opening statement is saying that all humankind you've come from a nafs al-wahida and this nafs this single nafs is Adam and that from Adam then Allah created the zawj, the, the partner to Adam, the, the, the Hawa. In, in, um, you find this in Razi and you find it in Zamakhshari as well. And an older debate especially among Mu'tazili theologians. And it has a lot to do with grammar, by the way. You know, I mean, if you're interested in the grammatical argument, you, you can read the Zamakhshari who 
does a good job explaining it. That that nafs is not the nafs of Adam, but it's as Allah is saying that both Adam and Eve were created from a single source, a single spirit. Whether that spirit is the breath of Allah or you know whatever the secrets of the Rauh are. But it's the opening of Surah An-Nisa to humankind is astoundingly egalitarian. And it's interesting that we're doing Surah An-Nisa it just, this just occurred to me that, that we're doing it after Surah Al-Hujurat where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of course Surah Al-Hujurat is revealed much later after the Nisa, as we know. But it's interesting that uh, in Surah Al-Hujurat, as we uh, talked about, that the same message and then the reminder that Allah gives us in the, the end of the Medina period that the, the reason for human diversity is that you will come to know one another, as we've talked about. But here, perhaps, if we're looking at it from a, a pro progression point of view, setting, laying the ground for what will eventually come in Surah Al-Hujurat, is this starkly egalitarian message. Humankind, you've all come from a single source. And all this diversity that you see, both men and women, ponder the fact that it is a single, pure, unadulterated source. Now, وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهُ الَّذِي تَسَأَلُونَ بِهِ وَالْأَرْحَامُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ عَلَيْكُمْ رَقِيبًا There is another interesting debate about this expression. That Allah is sort of speaking to us to our intuitive sense. تَسَأَلُونَ بِهِ وَالْأَرْحَامُ Allah is reminding us that our innate intuitive sense, unless we intervene to neutralize it and block it out purposely and intentionally, is that we gravitate towards asking the divine to help. I mean, the, the most stark example of that, of course, is that when we are in trouble, um, there is that innate sense of us that, um, that looks to a higher power. Now, of course, human beings are, are capable of, of 
of a great deal of creativity. So you know whether you 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 know you hear people say I'm I'm, I'm calling upon my guardian angel or uh, my ancestors to protect me or I call upon my um, karma or you know but the the consistent idea is this higher power that seems to be coded within us or is coded within us. But the expression here, So there are two main schools of thought about this. Some grammatically, this is a grammatical debate, they read it to mean that it refers to the way that people at the time would often um, appeal to God. So they, they would often say the expression, أَسْأَلُكَ بِاللَّهِ وَالرَّحِمْ I, I appeal to you in the name of Allah and in the name of everything dear to you. And so the first school of thought understood this to, to this, this, the first ayah to mean that Allah is saying, Be conscious of God because you, you all came from a single source and all of you ultimately make this appeal referencing Allah and Warrahim, that you, you also often appeal to whoever create or whoever you identify as your bonds of intimacy. You know, we normally mother and father, but, you know, it could be lineage, it could be tribe, it could be clan, and so on. The second school of thought said, read it as, وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ الَّذِي تَسَأَلُونَ بِهِ Stop. وَالْأَرْحَامِ So, be conscious of God who you always revert to and appeal to and be conscious of the rights of the Arham, meaning your lineage, your, 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 your mother, your father, your siblings. In, although from a grammatical perspective, probably the fair school makes more sense. From a substantive perspective, the, the second school makes more sense. That in, in fact, what, although in a somewhat unusual grammatical structure, that Allah is saying is that be conscious of the rights of God and with an implied statement there that and also be conscious of the rights that you owe your family al-arham and because surah an-nisa especially goes back to the issue of rahim quite often 
and and reforms, challenges and reforms in number of practices that were dominant in Arab culture at the time. Okay. Now, in demanding, if you are really, if you are really on board with the Islamic message, if you are truly embracing the Islamic message, and as, as we see, Surah An-Nisa talks a bit, quite a bit about those who say they're Muslim, but in fact, do not adopt the morality or ethics of Islam. You will fully comprehend the implications of the fact that you come from a single source, you are one. And, and that what matters is your relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the mention of a rahim is a prelude to placing human beings right in front of their responsibility towards those who have lost the rahim. It's saying, you know, be mindful of, understand that first comes Allah, but after Allah are your obligations towards the 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 relation that the relations that Allah has given you in terms of your blood relations. Allah has situated you as a brother, as a son, as a daughter, as a mother, as a father. Now, but I am reminding you of this to put you right in front of your responsibility before those who've lost the most important relationship in their lives, and that is their father, in my opinion, either father or mother or both. Because, you know, in, again, because of misogyny, in the, you often read in his books of Islamic law that an orphan is only someone who's lost their father. That's the orphan. But someone who's lost their mother is not an orphan. And, and that's just, there, there's just, that's just misogynistic. It's, um, I mean, and the yatama that um, the Quran talks about is any person who ends up being your charge and you are taking care of them because their closer blood relationship, normally their father or mother, are not available to take care of them. So you are taking care of them because of the absence of the parent who could do so. 
So immediately it goes to the to, to the questions of orphans. Now, I've done quite a bit of reading and, and research. At this stage, if Surat al-Nisa is revealed shortly after Uhud, at this stage, is it possible that there were so many children who were already orphaned, knowing that actually, I mean, in terms of numbers, the number of Muslims who were martyred in Badr and Uhud and the smaller battles, because before Badr and between Badr and Uhud and right after Uhud, there are smaller skirmishes. But the number of Muslims martyred in these battles doesn't rise to the level of a social problem. So, why? So, but the, the text of the Quran itself is an indication that Allah is underscoring our, our responsibility and obligations towards orphans. And the, the short of it is that orphans before Islam, the, because of the high mortality rates, and in particularly in Medina, what I eventually realized is that orphans, the number of orphans were not necessarily due to battles, but actually due to famines. Medina, um, I mean, and this is something that affected even the children of the Prophet himself. Um, um, I mean, seem to suffer from quite a few famines that have killed a good number of the adult population. And what occurs is that if your parents are dead, like the Prophet ﷺ himself, then your normally your uncles are given the responsibility of taking care of you. But then you realize that it was a well-settled part of Arab culture in the same way that if they would inherit women upon the deaths of a loved one. So if your brother dies, you actually inherit his wife and you can keep her and then you can exercise an option either to marry her or release her to be married to someone else. But until you exercise your option to either marry her or release her, she remains in your household. This is pre-Islamic practice. Similarly, with orphans, 
pre-Islamic Arab culture would had no qualms about an uncle uh, usurping taking all of the inheritance of an orphan that they are taking care of and absorbing that money to their wealth to the last dime. And there were, we have numerous reports of children who reached the age of majority or maturity or uh, you know what constituted adulthood at that time and then demand their inheritance and they would either be told your inheritance is, is all gone or no you have no right to your inheritance because your uncle who took you in decided to simply confiscate this inheritance and this was quite a widespread practice, which meant that orphans as a category, it was well known that if, it's, if, a, if someone is orphaned, that they're quite likely that when they each reach the age of marriage, that they have no wealth because their wealth was taken by whoever raised them. And as a result, there was a significant social taboo about the, the higher you are in wealth and in class, there was a significant social taboo about marrying your daughter or your son to an orphan. Because even an orphan from a privileged family is without money. And it was, Surat al-Nisa was taking on nothing less than this whole institution. Plus, as we will see, issues relating to the institution of slavery and issues relating to the position of women. But, so, Ferris First, in, in all the interpretive tradition around the second ayah is that the Quran comes and describes the taking of the money of an orphan as huban kabira, as truly a grave and very serious sin. And imposes, as we will see, an ethic that you can you you realize only by looking at the interpretive tradition that accompanied these ayat. That if for whatever reason you cannot afford to take care of an orphan out of your own money, and so you need to um, 
expend expenses or you need to sp to to take expenses from the money belonging to the orphan in other words the inheritance of an orphan the number of restrictions that especially the prophetic tradition placed about how minimal that taking has to be was unprecedented in arab culture so Arabs, for the first time, were learning that the money of an orphan is untouchable. But, as we'll see, it, the, the Quranic narrative even goes beyond that the idea that an orphan is a marital outcast or that honorable or prestigious people don't marry their sons or daughters to orphans was something that the entire tradition of the Prophet took head on with a considerable amount of resistance. And it's very interesting that we're doing in the set right after Hujurat because actually we, we, it, it, this in the set came first so it laid the groundwork for what Al-Hujurat ultimately underscores in very poignant language. Okay. There is a, um, a narrative um, Um, well, okay, so a couple of things. Also, keep in mind that pre-Islamic Arab society would not allow women to inherit. And if you are entitled to a share of inheritance, but at the time that your inheritance becomes due, you are young, you have, you don't, have not reached the age of majority or, or you're, you're um, um, prepubescent, you're a child in other words, then you lose your right to inheritance. Then next in line would take your money. which, of course, ended up time and time again disinheriting orphans. Um, so there's a narrative that, um, this is a report from Saeed bin Jubair, uh, that he reported that a man from the tribe of Ghatafan um, came to the, or a young man from the tribe of Watafon came to the Prophet and said that I'm an orphan and um, that when I reached the, the age of maturity, I went to my uncle and I said, where is my, my father's inheritance? And my uncle said, 
you have no right to any of it, I've taken it all. And that the Prophet or then orders that uncle to give the orphan his share of inheritance. And in some, you read in, in, in various places that, the, that this was the occasion for the revelation of this ayah. Again, I'm very skeptical about this. One, it, a lot of places don't even mention this narrative, and many places mention the narrative but don't don't identify it as an occasion for revelation. I think it is likely that this event with the man from Ghatafan that Saeed ibn Jubayr reports occurred after the revelation of this ayah. And because we have other reports of people coming to the Prophet, especially orphans, and complaining to the Prophet after revelation of this ayah that they've been left destitute. They were they were raised, their, their uncles took care of them, fed them, clothed them, so on. Um, but ultimately that their, their, their inheritance is gone and that so it was a consistent and systematic social problem and the fact that people were complaining about it and going to the prophet it it means that they became aware of their right to inheritance which didn't exist before the Quran gave them that right they wouldn't be complaining about it before the Quran because according to Arab culture, you didn't have a right, your inheritance. If if your uncle took care of you as an orphan, khalas, they, you know, the uncle took care of you. And in return, they take your inheritance. Okay. Then, so note, and also in the, this Quranic revelation, it, it introduced another thing. Which is for legal purposes, an enormous legal reform. And that is the idea that you can't mix their money with your money, which was unprecedented. And we, we have reports of people going to the Prophet and saying, well, you know, so are we supposed to keep their money separate? And the answer the Prophet consistently gives is he cites this ayah and says, yes. So you can't say, well, you know, I've been trading and I've mixed my money with their money and I don't know what belongs to them anymore. You must separate and create a sufficient legal barrier between what counts as their money and what counts as your money so you can account for their money when it becomes due. You know, in our day and age, although I'll tell you that I, I've heard many stories of families not honoring this and you know an, an orphan grows up and say oh well you know your money became part of the money that 
is in the family business and we don't know what part is yours anymore and you know, you, you know we, we can't split the family business and, and, and that's all un-Islamic. The money of the orphan because of Quranic intervention is sacrosanct and untouchable. You may trade in it reasonably to increase it and there is a debate as to what happens if if there are losses if you trade in it and especially if it's due to negligence because most scholars said if it's if you traded negligently then you must guarantee or you become a surety for the money lost but it is preferred that you just hold on to it and not take any risks with it uh, or, or some even make it a mandatory, not just highly recommended, but um, you see, Aslam uh, is safer, uh, so you don't incur sin. But this was, a, and again, it is, as we'll see, it is part of the normative trajectory of Surah Al-Nisa. Then, وَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ أَنْ لَا تُقْسِطُوا فِي الْيَتَامَى فَانْكِحُمْ وَطَابَ لَكُمْ مِنَ النَّسَاءِ مَثْنَى وَثُلَاثُ وَرُبَعَ فَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ أَنْ لَا تَعْدِلُوا فَوَاحِدًا أَوْ مَا مَلَكَتْ أَيْمَانُكُمْ ذَلِكَ أَدْنَى أَنْ لَا تَعُودُوا Okay. So there is a very interesting interpretive question with the third verse. First, let's see how Muhammad Asad translates it. Okay, so Muhammad Asad says, and if you have reason to fear that you might not act equitably towards orphan, then marry from among other women such as are lawful to you, even two or three or four, but if you have no reason to fear that you might not be able to treat them with equal fairness, then only one, or from among those whom you rightfully possess. This will make it more likely that you will not deviate from the right course. So, we have a narrative on Aisha. Aisha reports um, interpretively about this area that Men, or the practice used to be that people would uh, uh, raise orphans in their household. And then in order to avoid questions about the wealth of these orphans, they would end up marry the or- marrying the orphans they raised. And that what the Quran is saying is don't marry the orphans you've raised. Instead, marry one, two, three, or four other than the orphans that you've raised. 
This is known as Aisha's narrative, and it has been quite influential in the Tafsir traditions. The interpretation that you see in later centuries, which says that marriage can become, marrying two or three or four becomes a way of taking care of orphans. becomes more common or more popular later. Now, the language, the way that the ayah is phrased, وَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ أَنْ لَا تُقْصِتُوا فِي الْيَتَامَ فَانْكِحُوا مَا طَابَ لَكُمْ مِنَ النِّسَاءِ مَسْنَ وَثُلَاثُ وَرُبَعَ can validly and plausibly have both meanings. And what do, as an interpretive matter, when we look at an ayah and we see that it can be, if have meaning A and meaning B, and meaning A used to be a social issue that people would try to marry the orphans they've raised in order to avoid scrutiny or questions about usurping their wealth. But in our day and age, this doesn't happen anymore. When was the last time you've heard about the problem being that someone raised an orphan and then married them? What... But interpretation B could remain relevant, that there are orphans in society and that marriage could help take care of these orphans. I believe, and Allah knows best, that when we have ayat in the Quran that are phrased in this way, the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala phrases it intentionally to create the interpretive dynamic for growth. If you truly believe that the Quran is a divine text, then the author of this divine text knows the normative trajectories that exist within the text knows that, well, it can be read this way and it can be read that way. And it is part of the brilliance of the text that it can address an issue that exists at a time and address an issue that exists centuries later, much beyond that time. So, when I read, or when you, you don't actually encounter it, I, I, interestingly enough, um, I haven't found too many modern Muslims that are aware that if you look at 
even you know you look at Tabari or Ibn Kathir, they interpret this verse as well. If you fear, you know, if uh, you shouldn't marry the orphans you raise, marry other women. Um, it's interesting that you don't, but but that interpretation is no longer pertinent. I mean, or has lost its its um, force. But the language itself tells me that what Allah is is underscoring is fairness that taking care of orphans is such a priority. And a society that fails to create mechanisms not for putting orphans in an institution and othering them, because when you put them in an orphanage, you're othering them. You're branding them. You're not raising them in, in within families. They, they, they become, you know, they grow up with all types of psychological complexes because, and, and the amount of abuses and, you know, the... the, the most most Muslim societies, so the security forces don't allow anyone to report on what happens in orphans, but in orphanages, but what happens in orphanages in orphanages is horrendous, is terrible, and most modern Muslims no longer have that ethic of there is an orphan in the family, so that orphan must grow up surrounded by family. We we don't have that attitude at all. We allow orphans to go to orphanages all the time. And for those people who love to talk about decolonization, why don't you start there? Because the idea of orphanages is definitely a byproduct of colonialism. It is before colonialism the idea that orphans had to be raised in families. It, it was not the state that just, you know, herd, herds them in one place and then streamlines the process of raising them. Um, the, the very first orphanage built in the Muslim country was in Egypt during the French occupation. I mean, it is said, Allah Alam, uh, Ibn Iyas says that uh, that the French soldiers raped so many Egyptian women that they create they created an orphanage out of necessity to cover up the anyway. Allah Alam. Okay. Now, the entire narrative about limiting polygamous marriages to four goes back to this ayah. But notice the usage of the word khiftum. It occurs twice in this ayah. First, in khiftum, alla tuqsitu fi nisa. And khiftum 
normally translated, if you fear. But is it appealing to your conscience? So is it saying to you as an individual, as a matter of conscience, if you see that as an individual, according to your own circumstance, that there will be a lack of justice or equity towards orphans. So then, Mary 2, 3, 4, and then says, and, But if you fear that you will not, you cannot be just among the women you marry, then only marry one. Is this appealing to you as a matter of conscience, or is this addressing society? In other words, is delegating the question of the policy question the social policy question to society at large. Throughout Islamic history, because polygamy was a widely practiced institution throughout Islamic history, and because the role of men in interpretation male interpreters who were predominantly the interpreters of the tradition saw it as inconceivable that that decision, whether to marry two, three, or four, would not be left to their individual discretion. So the idea that this ayah is addressing society at large and saying, as a society, decide whether you need polygamy to be fair to orphans or you don't need polygamy to take it away from the realm of individual discretion to the realm of public policy. This was not imagined as a possibility as an interpretive possibility throughout the Islamic tradition. Because the male interpreter always saw it as a privilege. It is the man who then can exercise the judgment call, and as long as a woman is willing to marry herself to this man as a second or third or fourth wife, then that's the end of it. Coherent discourses about this matter have been grossly interrupted by the legacy of colonialism and westernization. Because anytime you raise this issue about the Quranic discourse, immediately this is seen as part of a trajectory to westernize society 
to embrace Western values, and rightfully so in most situations, because quite often the people who are you know, raising the banner against polygamy are not just secularists, but are secularists who have nothing to do with taqwa or piety. In other words, they seem to be on a war, on a, on a crusade against Islam itself. So what the legacy we've been left with is that the epistemology of the text or the hermeneutics of the text, people who are actually coming and say, well, look, Allah is talking in this text, the, the, the grammar of the text itself doesn't preclude the possibility because Allah is saying, if you fear that you cannot be just to orphans, then do this and this and this. But if you fear, now in khiftum, is this, is Allah saying, each male, regardless of how pious they are, or regardless of how wise they are, or how uh, educated they are, is free to make this judgment of if you fear, or is Allah talking to society at large? We can't, if we, we, we are unable to raise this issue because of how suffocating, suffocating the presence of colonialism has been and continues to be in our lives. So the minute you raise anything that looks like taking more, uh, vanquishing Islam further from our public lives and a further concession to the West, uh, people, you know, uh, go to war. So, I mean, to put it very bluntly, if someone like Sisi starts talking about banning polygamy in Egypt, I am opposed to it, not because of anything that, because of what how I feel about polygamy, because of what, how I feel about Sisi and anything that Sisi says. And whatever comes out of his mouth, I know it is probably animated by an anti-Islamic animus. Because I believe that in his heart of heart, this man, Sisi, does not like the religion of Islam like Mubarak before him. So we are stuck. We, 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 we are unable to move beyond this point. And I don't know when, if ever, will we be able to move beyond this point. Every time there is an attempt at a coherent um, principle discourse, it becomes easily um, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, easily, you know, uh, 
you know, the, the noise overcomes it. The, 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 it's just the, the political noise from uh, about colonialism and westernization and secularism, it, it just becomes, okay. So, if you fear injustice towards orphans, then two, three, or four, part of what enters in this edition is that according to reports, number of reports, that when this ayah is revealed, those who are married more to more than four um, were, were put in a position where they had to limit, they, had to, they could only stay married to four and had to divorce wives more than four. And often the argument has been made, well, look, this is proof that polygamy, whether to, to engage in polygamy or not to engage in polygamy, has nothing to do with orphans. I think that's in opposite. Uh, the ayah itself comes in says if you if you fear injustice towards orphans then marry two three four and cre creates the limit the fact that the limit of valid marriages is four doesn't in any way is answer the question of what is the the the, the initial illa, the initial cause to be for polygamy in first place. Are there situations other than justice toward orphans that would be validate polygamy? And the answer is, well, we need an honest and frank conversation that is faithful to the text, faithful to morality and ethics, faithful to a full participation of the half of the population that has been left out of the conversation for centuries, i.e. women. And then we'll see. I mean, I, I don't know. But what I know is we can't just take the discourse as we've inherited it and it is the end all of everything, the beginning and the end of everything. And, and I also know that I don't want someone who lacks Islamic piety as a scholar to come and tell me, you know, their wild theories about how we don't need to observe this in the Quran and how this should be abolished in the Quran I'm sorry, I'm not going to listen to you about the Quran unless first I'm satisfied that you care about what God says. So, you know, all these secularists that prance around and come to tell me what God's will is, and I look at them and I, and, you know, I know they don't observe anything about God's law. I'm, I'm not interested in what they have to say about the Quran. It's just completely of no interest to me.
אוקיי. So then, فَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ أَلَّا تَعْدِلُوا So now, if you fear, and again, the issue is it upon individual discretion, that you will not be able to be just, then, then the preference is one. أَوْ مَا مَلَكَتْ أَيْمَانُكُمْ أَيْمَانُكُمْ ذَلِكَ أَدْنَ أَلَّا تَعُولُوا I'm sorry, I can't hear myself, so... really irritating um, okay so now there is another issue and um, here the phrase so either you marry one is it saying So then you, if you are not going to be just or you fear that you don't be, you're not going to be just either individually or collectively, again, and that's an open question. So marry only one. Is it saying, so marry only one or marry those who your right hands Possess. Or is it saying, so marry only one, or you plus the one you can also have who your right hands possess? This has been a consistent issue throughout the Islamic legal tradition. And to sum it up for you, even what is reported, the, the Prophet himself would never give himself license to have sex with a slave unless he married the slave. So the reports, which unfortunately you have modern Muslims who try to challenge this, um, that he married Maria the Copt that was given to him as a gift as a slave as a slave girl but here's the thing the tradition itself you have tension reports competing inconsistent reports you have reports that at the time the companions would not give themselves license to have a sexual relationship with a slave unless they're married to the slave. But you also have contradictory reports that give the opposite picture. That they would, that if you owned a slave, then you could have sex with the slave. 
Now, interestingly, you also have, add to this complicated mixture, troublemaking reports. Reports that the license to have sex with slaves without marriage included not just having a woman slave, but a woman having male slaves. But male interpreters didn't like the reports that women would be able to have sex with a male slave without marriage. So they've declared all these reports unauthentic. And throughout the course of a significant part of imperial Islam, Islam as the, as the dominant religion in an empire, you can't say all, but it's for instance, the Shafi or most Shafi jurors said that you, you can't have sex with a slave girl unless you're married to her. But a significant number of jurists said that ownership is enough. You don't need marriage. The problem, though, is that the traditions that talk about the Prophet and the companions not having a license for a sexual relation with a slave unless there was marriage either they are married to them so they can have sexual relations with them or if they are married to another then they can't have sexual relations because part of the dynamic is that it was well established and well documented that slaves in the Islamic civilization would be able to marry so a slave would be married to people outside their master. And the way Muslim jurists dealt with, with, with this said, oh, well, you know, if your slave is married to, to someone, then you can't have sex with them. But, but it would have, if you're going to allow slaves to marry outside the master-servant relationship, then how could it be that you would allow the master to freely have sexual relations with a slave because obviously that's going to affect their ability to marry someone outside the master's slave relationship. The traditions that talk about that the, the pro-marriage traditions are traditions against the historical grain. Meaning that the fact that they are reported is 
historically surprising. It is what you would not expect from the historical context. In other words, the historical context is that people would buy a slave and have sex with him. So when you find reports that say, no, it, it, marriage was always required. You know, dowry is always there. Whether there are witnesses or not is a separate matter. Because some jurors said, well, as long as there's an offer and acceptance between master and slave, that's good enough even if there are no witnesses. But that's a separate matter. At least we get into the, the requirements for a valid marriage. But the fact that it is against the historical grain is, as a probative matter, unless there was an ideological party that for some reason was out to defend the rights of slaves, so in other words, it was a political cause, then the, when something is reported that is historically surprising, it is actually evidence of the validity of that historical fact. In my view, what is noteworthy is what surprises you historically, not what you expect historically. It's one thing if there's a political motivation behind the historically surprising fact. So if historically surprising is a report that predicts that Ali is going to be killed by an unjust party. Why is it historically surprising? Because normally we don't have traditions that can predict the future. So that's historically surprising. Now, but then, so I might be tempted to take this as a valid report, but the fact that this that an ideological bias could explain that historically surprising fact makes me that then suspicion that this is a correct report rebuts that suspicion. So the ideological bias neutralizes whatever presumption I have in favor of the validity of this report. So when it comes to the pro-marriage reports about slavery, the question is, do I have an ideological bias that would make me suspect that there was an incentive to invent pro-marriage reports about slavery? And the answer is no. All the ideological bias that existed was actually quite the opposite. Men had one heck of an ideological bias to want to buy slaves and have sex with them without marriage. And they called it a tasarri, a tasarri bil ima. And 
especially the richer they are, the greater the incentive. And we even have reports that particularly Khulafa who were, I mean, and this is, you know, instead of this, the garbage that has been published on slavery in Islam, if someone actually wants to do good scholarship, there we have ample historical evidence that the state tried to enter into this debate in against the pro-marriage reports and that the state wanting to protect the um, slave markets for financial reasons and wanted to protect the privilege of the nobility at buying as many slaves as they want and having sexual access to these slaves got involved sometimes in imprisoning and torturing fuqaha that issued fatwas that said, no, you must marry a slave before you can have sexual relations with a slave. So the weight of the state was actually against these reports, which all means that on balance, I believe the pro-marriage reports far more than I believe the pro-misogyny reports, pro-sexual license reports, pro-economic privilege reports that say, then there is another issue. Most jurists said you can have most of the jurists that said you can have sex with a slave without marriage said yes, but you can't coerce them. Okay, how is that supposed to happen? Am I to believe that throughout the institutions of slavery, we, we have numerous examples of people marrying slaves. So that's well documented. But am I to believe that all the sex that took place without marriage to slaves, that it was actually without coercion, voluntary? The very rule of non-coercion and the very context of the favoring limiting oneself to one and the very structure of this ayah and as we will see in ayah in um, in verse 25 the Quran itself and surah 24 verse 32 the Quran itself seems to be saying that you have to marry slave girls we'll get to that but the point I am I'm, I'm trying to, to communicate, and I don't know if I'm doing a good job at it, is that empires 
for a long time, slavery was a deeply embedded part of the institutions of empires. Prisoners of war was a, 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 a reality, an undeniable reality. Fact, slave traders was an undeniable reality. And regulating slave traders, like regulating animal people, the people who traded and sold and bought animals, um, something that the state did not do till much, much later. I mean, the very idea of how, how much can the state regulate trade. So, and empires relied on slaves for cheap service, cheap labor, so on. Male privilege, as well as economic privilege, had every incentive to propagate free sexual access to slavery. Most Muslim Jews couldn't get beyond the ikrah point. So they would always say, yeah, you, you, can, but you can't coerce her. But, but okay, so why would a slave agree to have to sex with a master if, if, if coercion is not involved? I, I, you know, but not, nevertheless, they all engaged in this fiction that, oh, they consented, whatever consent means. Meanwhile, the Quran itself seems to be telling us, as well as many reports about the practice of the Prophet and the practice of the companions, that in at least in early Islam, pre-imperial Islam, you couldn't have sex with slaves without marriage. And that marriage to slaves counted as a full marriage. It is either the single marriage you're going to engage in or one of the four marriages you're going to engage in. And we have many reports, and as we'll talk about, of people who are actually married to slave girls. Either as the only marriage they ever entered into or as one of the marriages they entered into. Do you go for imperial Islam as the valid reading of the Quran, or do you go for what I believe was pre-imperial Islam as the valid reading of the Quran? This is left to the modern Muslim interpreter. This is why I'm frustrated by Muslims who basically jump on the Orientalist bandwagon and write books to say, oh, Islam never had a problem with slavery. I mean, if you just want to play the relativism, you know, well, you know, we have reports like this and have reports like this, so we can't really decide what's right or wrong, so let's just not make any moral judgment. And let's just say Islam was neutral. Then what is your role as a moral interpretive agent? Don't, as, as, a, as an in, moral interpretive agent, 
are you engaged with a text as immorally hedonistic text or, or as immorally committed text? And when I see that the ayah starts out by saying, and as we will see, it, the Quran actually, not just that, but the Quran will come back and say, you are all the same and you are all equal, free and slave. But the ayah, but the, the Surah Al-Nasa'ah starts out with, you are all human beings from the same source. Okay, take care of orphans. Limit yourself, end this nonsense about marrying as many women as you want and limit yourself in order to be fair to orphans. Then maybe you need to marry more than one. But if you are unable to be just, then it's only one. And which could be read as marry only one or marry milk yameen. And, the, and the, the rest of the surah explained this further by showing that the preference is, and we'll, we'll talk about it, is that to marry a free person rather than a slave, which will come to, to is that, well, if you're going to marry this person, then free them. But we'll, we'll come to that. That as many interpreters of the Quran pointed out, is that the preference to marry free means it's a preference what if you're going to marry them, then free them. Don't keep them as slaves. Because it is, it, it's a, complicates, I mean, in their t- terminology, it complicates the legal situation to be married to a slave because then the rights of a master and the rights of, a, of, of and how we balance that with the rights of a wife become quite complicated. Now, here's the thing. I don't believe any of this is coincidental in the Quran. And, and this is not mine. This is, this is, you know, people like Muhammad Abdu and his tafsir have made this argument, and I think very persuasively. And it's amazing to me that instead of building on what Muhammad Abdu did, we're going back again, backwards instead of forwards, with some of the modern Muslim scholars. Uh, that Muhammad Abdul, people like Muhammad Abdul argued that they, the way that the Quran is phrased, if slavery as an institution was abolished at the time of the Prophet, it would have led to endless layers of injustice not just because you have your enemy who could enslave Muslims and you can't deal with them reciprocally, but in addition to that, 
so much of the economy and finances, slavery was, was an embedded part of the labor dynamics. But, and this is something that I've seen with my own, with my own eyes, is that a, a simple abolition of slavery would have left a very large population of people without any form of care, social care, or social network that supports and protects. So till today in the south of Egypt, and again, I've met these families, there are families that all the slavery has been long abolished in Egypt, but till today in the south of Egypt, there are families that have kids that are the children of slaves living with these families. If you, they, normally this, this person are identified as walad or feta, depending. They know that their status is the status of a slave. The way they address their owner is often as abuya or ummi. And in interviews that I've seen in my work with Human Rights Watch, where they are, they're asked, do you know you have the right to f be free? Do you want to leave the family you're with? And their answer is, we, they are part, so much a part of the network that they look at the, at the, the law that grants them freedom as an intervention in a deeply embedded social structure that they're not willing to disrupt. In other words, they don't want to go anywhere. They, they are, they're satisfied, and it's very difficult to try to convince them that they should rebel against their status. To them, who they call Abuya or Ummi is the, the, the only guardian they've known, the only guardian they take care of. This guardian is responsible for their employment, responsible for their livelihood. This guardian eventually marries them, you know, pays their dowry when they get married, they, they, they you know, furnish their homes, they provide them the places they get married, and, and they've been living like that for generations upon generations. But the text itself, within the language of the text, is the potential for the end of the institution of slavery. And that's what people like Muhammad Abdul noticed a long time ago, is that if you read the Quranic text, it is consistently establishing a normative value system of the morality, the positive morality of freeing slaves. 
the, repeatedly, and we'll see in Surah An-Nisa again, where it, it underscores the moral value that of liberating slaves. And as we know, early, among the very earlier revelations of the Quran, that we are told that to free a slave is it's not coming to me. Um, anyway, that to free your neck from bondage in hell, the way you you escape the bondage of hell is to free a slave. As the Quran says. So that ethic is is established early early on in Quran, consistently, the freeing of slaves, which is by the way very unique. As, because the Bible doesn't that, or do that, and obviously the Old Testament doesn't do that. And other than the Quran, I don't know any religious text that does that. that the constant emphasizing of freeing slaves as a positive moral value. But you will see that the text itself, within the text, is the moral power for achieving the ultimate Quranic project of freeing people from slavery. Who unleashes that power within the text? It is the interpreter of the text who acts as a, as a moral agent in approaching that text. It's like the text, it's like, it's like oil. Oil is energy. Allah created the oil underground. But who unleashes the power that is richly embedded in the ground? Well, it's the engineer that comes and says, okay, I'm going to excavate, I'm going to bring out the oil, and then we're going to use this oil to do all these things that we do with oil. The interpreter is the excavator of the text. If the interpreter is a bad engineer, you're not going to unleash the moral power of the text. If you're a bad engineer, you're going to create a disaster. In which, in, instead of excavating the moral richness of the ground or the, the richness of the ground, you are simply going to create a mess. You know, you're going to pollute, you're going to kill a lot of animals. With, you know, you might release the oil that just gushes out in the air if it's, you know, a pressurized uh, dig and, and so on. And with all the disasters that could ensue, This is a point that a hundred years ago we nearly realized through the efforts of people like Muhammad Abdu, it, it, it became ex accepted mantra. There is a moral power in the text and it is the ethical excavator, the interpreter, that comes and unleashes the moral power of the text. 
and that Allah embeds, Allah puts morality or embeds morality in the text in the same way that Allah puts oil in the ground. Lo and behold, a hundred years later, Again, we the normal story about colonialism, secularism, Westernism, Salafism, Wahhabism, all the isms in the world. And we're back again to do we really need morality? Doesn't really, you know, isn't there something like just a, a, an interpreter that comes and just applies the text mechanically? Why would there be moral values embedded in the text that needs a good engineer? It's amazing. It's like in the sunnah of Allah's count, Allah teaches us that you need the good doctor to treat. The, the doctor doesn't invent medicine. All the doctor does is go to nature see the medicine that nature offers and applies it to the illness. And an engineer comes and takes what Allah has put in nature, puts it together in the right way and offers value to us. But then we come so we could learn from Allah's sunnah in creation. But then we come to the text and say, Oh, we don't need a doctor. We don't need an engineer. We just need a robot that reads the text and applies it mechanically and blindly. Don't you learn from Allah's sunnah? Allah consistently tells us, I create good, but I want you to work to bring out that good. Similarly, Allah creates the good in the Quran and puts it in the Quran. But, the, but says in the same way, if you're stupid, if you're ignorant, if you're lazy, the Quran is not going to give you its fruits. The same thing about women and slavery. And for that matter, orphans. Because... As we will see, we don't rise to the level of morality that is embedded in Surah An-Nisa. We, we repeatedly fail the morality of Surah An-Nisa that, in other words, we often come to Surah An-Nisa, but we don't excavate the oil. We leave the oil and, you know, or pretend it doesn't exist or whatever it is. Let's let's take a short break. Oh, is that what you're gonna say? Okay. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. I'm just looking at um, Muhammad Asad to see how he understood this. So it's really interesting. So he says, um, I'm reading from a footnote that he has.
He says that it is obvious that the phrase two or three or four, but if you have reason to fear, etc., is a, a parenthetic clause relating to both the free women mentioned in the first part of the sentence and to female slaves, for both these nouns are governed by the imperative verb marry. Thus, the whole sentence has this meaning. Marry from among other women such are lawful to you, or from among those whom you rightfully possess, even two or three or four. But if you have reason to fear that you might not be able to treat them with equal fairness, then only one implying that irrespective of whether they are free women or originally slaves, the number of wives must not exceed four. It was in this, in this sense that Muhammad Abdu understood the above verse. This view is moreover supported by verse 25 of the surah as well as yeah, 2432, exactly what I said, where marriage with female slaves is spoken of. Contrary to the popular view and the practice of many Muslims in past centuries, neither the Quran nor the life example of the Prophet provides any sanction for sexual intercourse without marriage. He's, he's absolutely right on. I mean, it, it, it's just frustrating that instead of going forward, we go backwards. Because if you look at what, I mean, including what ISIS did, um, it is just completely twisted because it, it's, it, you, it, just to be clear that even imperial Islam, even the institutions of Islamic law that arose alongside the empire of Islamic law. For said that it is it, it was unlawful to abduct people and sell them into slavery. So the only possible venue left open for slavery were prisoners of war. And prisoners of war, obviously, it's a decision by the political powers whether to exchange prisoners, ransom prisoners, free prisoners, or enslave prisoners. But to be very clear, Islamic law continued to say, the official Islamic law, formal Islamic law, that abduction of people is haram and buying an abducted human being is haram. So you couldn't just, it, it was haram to just buy, to go to the slave market and buy someone if you ask this person, where did you come from and say, I was abducted. Now, interestingly, practice could not live up to that. So Muslims, there's no question that 
the practice of Muslims for centuries ignored that part of Islamic law. Although Muslim jurists continue, in the same way that Muslim jurists said you can't kill political rebels, but caliphs killed political rebels all the time. Muslim jurists continue to say that you can't buy someone who is abducted and you're not allowed to abduct anyone. Um, but people just ignored it. The other thing, keep in mind that in Islamic law, if you marry a slave, what, and even if you don't free that slave, if the slave has a child, that automatic, automatically makes him free. That's known as Ummul Walad, that a slave bearing you a child means, now, this is according to Islamic law. In, in practice, like the, 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 the uh, families that I was telling you about in south of Egypt, um, um, some of the slave women in these families have married their masters um, and bore them children, and the children grow up calling themselves slaves, although according to Islamic law, they and their mother become free the minute you have a child from a, from a... The other thing is though, most of these families, the vast majority, the slave women are not married to their masters. They're married to either other slaves or even to people outside um, the families. And it's interesting that I've actually, I actually uh, uh, don't know of any person that we've interviewed who said that they've had sexual relations with their master out, outside of wedlock. Actually, it didn't occur to me till now that actually the, these families, I mean, and this, these are people who've like had this institution for centuries in um, remote parts of Egypt. So anyway, and I know that, you know, but it's just um, one final point. The very expression, who your right hands possess. Now, that expression, the Quran doesn't use the expression slaves. And we know that the Prophet forbade anyone to refer to a slave as a slave and said, don't call them a slave, call them fatai or fatati. Uh, it's like the equivalent of my boy or my girl. Um, but the, the expression in the Quran, your rights hands possess which as we will see in Surah An-Nisa, sometimes could refer to slaves and sometimes it clearly doesn't just refer, it doesn't refer to slaves at all. 
but who are the people that your right hands possess? Well, it could be a slave. It could be someone which used to, as an institution that used to exist, it's not as common in our age. Someone that you're sworn to in marriage or promised to in marriage contingent on their consent when they get older. So families would say, I promise my son to you and you promise my daughter to you, but th this promise had to be validated upon the son and daughter reaching maturity and then consenting to that marriage. These would also be described as your right hands possess. Um, the, your right hands possess was also often used to people who you are engaged to, betrothed to, or people that you've done the contract, but you haven't consummated the marriage. So when I see that the Quran systematically avoids using the expression slaves, although it was known. I mean, it, 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 Allah could have used it. And instead, Allah consistently uses who your right hands possess. I see that as a potentiality in the text. In other words, it's like the text has a potential of consistent validity and consistent relevance. It is that we fail to ask, well, what type of relationships would fit in this category in a day and age in which we don't have slavery. And I think then we can develop a much more nuanced relationship with the text than we normally do, where it is simply whether it refers to slavery or not. And I'll, I'll show you examples in Surah An-Nisa later on. Okay, do we move on? Okay. So, so now, for وَآتُ النِّسَاءَ صَدَقَاتِهِنَّ نِحْلَةً فَإِنْ طِبْنَا لَكُمْ عَنْ شَيْءٍ مِنْهُ نَفْسًا فَكُلُوهُ هَنِيئًا مَرِيئًا This is now verse 4. Um, Muhammad Asad's translation. And give unto women their marriage portions in the spirit of a gift. And if they of their own accord give up unto you 
you ought thereof, then enjoy it with pleasure and good cheer. Um, so, وَآتُ النِّسَاءَ صَدَقَاتِهِنَّ نِحْلًا Whatever you give to women, give, uh, uh, translating it in the spirit of a gift actually is good. Uh, meaning that what you give, do not, it, it is not a barter relationship. Do not expect anything in return. And whatever women wish to share of their wealth with you, in other words, whatever concessions they give you or whatever they, of their own property they share with you, then there is no problem in you accepting that. But there is another meaning to verse number four that is very significant. And that is in pre-Islam, when men, when women would marry, it was very rare for the male guardian to allow the woman to keep her dowry. The dowry was paid, and it was often paid, or always, nearly always paid, to the male guardian, and the male guardian would take the money. And this verse banned this practice, requiring that the dowry be given to the woman and kept by the woman. And so then when it says, the, the second portion of, the ayah, of uh, this ayah, فَإِن طِبْنَ لَكُمْ عَنْ شَيْءٍ مِنْهُ نَفْسًا فَقُلُوهُ هَنِيئًا مَرِيئًا Then it means that if they allow you through their own free will to keep any part of the dowry, then it is permissible for you to do that. So in other words, the dowry is theirs, and they decide what, what is retained by them or not retained by them. The reason I'm underscoring this is that, although Muhammad Asad is correct in the, the literal, if you read it literally without context, it could easily mean that whatever you give to women, given the spirit of a gift. But we know from the context of this ayah that this ayah banned the practice of men keeping the dowry that was paid in marriage and that the dowry had to be kept by women. And again, Islamic practice falls very short of that like a lot of other things. Um, you know, you, I'm sure you will know many families in the Muslim world till now um, 
where you know they, they, they don't understand that that the ban came from the Quran that it was the Quran that said that you can't keep the dowry to yourself okay then five ولا تؤتوا السفهاء أموالكم التي جعل الله لكم قيما وارزقوهم فيها واكسوهم وقولوا لهم قولا معروفا This is five Muhammad Asad says And do not entrust to those who are weak of judgment the possessions which God has placed in your charge for their support, but let them have their sustenance therefrom, and clothe them, and speak unto them in kindly ways. Um, the the critical thing here is that that word sufaha, and there is a, a debate in the in the tradition whether. Um, Because the safih is 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 normally an expression to we use to someone who's who's lacking mental capacity, and so when it says the if you are in charge of someone. If they lack mental capacity, do not simply turn over the money to them. Is it referring to people who have not reached the age of maturity? So in other words, minors. And so you're saying don't turn the money over to minors, but rather take care of them until they reach the age where they you know, they can become responsible. Or is it talking about what in medieval law used to be referred to as imbeciles? Um, if you have an imbecile under your charge, then be kind to them and spend on, on them, but you are responsible for making sure that their wealth is not wasted. And um, all I, I mean, it, it's just, it can it can sustain both meanings. And a lot of Quranic commentators thought it's talking about minors and not imbeciles. But nevertheless, this area had a significant influence in the legal discourse on what if, in fact, you are, the person in your charge is what they used to call medieval law in the, uh, imbecile, in other words, person lacking man, uh, full mental capacity. And, but again, you see the emerging theme you are all of one. It focuses on orphans, and as we will see, 
it will even it will or it focuses also on marriage of this category of people who lack freedom, slaves or whatnot. Although I don't like the word slave because it doesn't translate well into uh, the Islamic context. Anyway, um, the rights of women to their dowry, your obligation towards being in charge of someone that lacks mental capacity, and the your the mandate not just to take care of them financially, but to be kind to them. And be consistently kind in the way you talk to them. Okay. Then verse 6 talks more directly about orphans who have not reached the age of maturity. So it says that you are in charge of orphans until they reach the age of marriage. And there's a lot of legal debates about what that precisely means, but anyway. If now you are satisfied that they can take care of themselves, turn their money over to them. And so continuing on from the legislation that we see in verse number two. So you turn over their money to them. You are not allowed to spend under the guise of well, I am spending on expenses. You are not allowed to spend of their money. Israfan um, wabidara. Let's see how this is six. Muhammad Asad uh, um, translates it as. Um, what's your mind? Hand over to them their possessions and do not consume them with wasteful spending and in haste, ere they grow up. It's not really in haste. You can't engage in wasteful spending and you can't engage in, I would say, irresponsible spending. So you are going to be held responsible or accountable for every dime and whether, in fact, it was a necessary expenditure. And if you can afford, because you are well off, to spend none of their money, not even on expenses, then that's what you should do. But if you are poor and you need their money to support them, so then it, it has to be in careful measure. And when you turn their more their money over to them, you have to have it witnessed. 
all of this was a diametrical departure from the practice vis-a-vis orphans before Surat al-Nisa. And it actually, I mean, it's interesting when, while Muslims, when it came to something like polygamy, they, they did not, they resisted the idea of making or creating an institutional intervention in the practice of polygamy. It was very different when it came to the issue of orphans. So they created an administrative infrastructure that had the power of oversight as to how people were spending the wealth of orphans. And eventually, orphans could bring a cause of action accusing their caretakers of engaging in wasteful spending. And we do have records of judgments throughout Islamic civilization in which uh, people would be ordered to reimburse an orphan because of wasteful spending. Or even in the case of people uh, where an orphan would plead that their caretaker didn't need to spend any of their money because they were well off. Uh, their judges tended to, I mean, it depends on what time we're talking about and what jurisdiction and so on, but judges tended to look at reasonable expenditures anyway. Okay. Then, seven, للرجال نصيب مما ترك الوالدان والأقربون وللنساء نصيب مما ترك الوالدان والأقربون مما قل منه أو كثر نصيبا مفروضا وإذا حضر قسمة أولي القربة واليتامى والمساكين فارزقوهم منه وقولوا لهم قولا معروفا وليخشى الذين لو تركوا من خلفهم ذرية ضعافا خافوا عليهم فليتقوا الله وليقولوا قولا سديدا. This is seven, eight, and nine. Oh, um, let's add ten. إن الذين يأكلون أموال اليتامى ظلما إنما يأكلون في بطونهم نارا وسيصلون سعيرا. So, Note, 10 says, completing the, the, the circle, that whoever consumes um, 
the wealth of orphans. That is a, an unforgivable sin. I mean, the, 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 the sin of the money that they consume cannot, is not reimbursed. I mean, is, is not simply overlooked. But this seven, لِلْرِجَالِ نَصِيبٌ مِمَّا تَرَكَ الْوَالِدَانِ وَالْأَقْرَبُونَ وَلِلْنِسَاءِ نَصِيبٌ مِمَّا تَرَكَ الْوَالِدَانِ وَالْأَقْرَبُونَ مِمَّا قَلَّ مِنْهُ أَوْ كَثُرُ نَصِيبًا مَفْرُوضًا This was the beginning in the Medina period, the beginning of the Quran demanding that or requiring and prescribing that women now, it's not just men that have a share in of inheritance, but women also have a share in inheritance. And that is why you notice in 7, it specifies men and specifies women, because it needed to explicitly say, in the same way that men have shares, women have shares. Again, to underscore the, the point that it doesn't matter whether you think, well, you know, this is such a small inheritance that it's not worth dividing or it's not worth giving women a share because of the general practice of disinheriting women in pre-Islam, pre-Islamic Arabia. <coughs> Notice eight, وَإِذَا حَضَرَ قِسْمَةَ أُولِي قُرْبَ وَالْيَتَامَ وَالْمَسَاكِينَ see how he translates. So Muhammad Asad says, and when other near of kin and orphans and needy persons are present at the distribution of inheritance, give them something thereof for their sustenance and speak unto them in a kindly way. The reason I'm flagging eight is the language itself is seems clear, right? That so there are clear shares that Allah now is going to tell us about to men and women. But when it comes to time to divide the inheritance and give shares, be mindful that there are poor people who might not get or not might not be entitled to a share of inheritance and those poor might be relatives they might be orphans or this expression wal masakin most interpreters said this includes hired help or servants in the household so relatives were not entitled to a share, orphans were not entitled to a share, and hired help or servants who live with you in the household and work who are obviously not entitled to a share. 
Don't ignore the presence of these people. And give for give them something. And be kind to them, so don't ignore their feelings when they see that others are inheriting, but they're not inheriting. Aisha, there is a report from Aisha in which she said the, um, something to the effect of, uh, about uh, verse 8. لم تنسخ هذه الآية ولكن تهاون الناس في العمل بها عائشة is saying this ayah was never abrogated but people at her time which when you think of Aisha's time that's very early this is, she's saying this after the death of the Prophet but in the first century very first century of Islam, right in the decade after the death of the Prophet, that people never implemented it. And this is ex an example of these, the, the, an, ex an example of these narratives in the Quran that challenge people to immorality they often fail to rise to. Because it is literally saying that as you are distributing money to those who have legal shares, think about those who don't have legal shares and don't ignore their feelings. And make sure you give them and when it says in other words, when it says speak kindly to them, it means what? It means beware of their feelings. So, again, what is the ethical dynamic that the Quran is inviting us to? So, again, think of orphans is getting us to think of what women what what women do not have whether it's their dowry whether they're a share of inheritance think of even people who might be have mental incapacity or mentally challenged think of even those within your household who don't have rights, might, might not have a legal right, but have a moral right. The reason I'm underscoring this because, is because of the general theme of Surah An-Nisa. It is your moral consciousness towards various categories of people that are without or that are at a disadvantage. And then, Aisha said 
that verse 8 was often ignored by people or where people in their time ignored. Well, you could say this about verse 9 in our times. وَلْيَخْشَ الَّذِينَ لَوْ تَرَكُوا مِنْ خَلْفِهِمْ ذُرِّيَّةً ضِعَافًا خَافُوا عَلَيْهِمْ فَلْيَتَّقُوا اللَّهَ وَلْيَقُولُوا قَوْلًا سَدِيدًا And be mindful of the fact that just think that as you deal with the with others as you deal as you deal with poor relatives or you deal with orphans or you deal with hired help that but for the grace of God this could be your children and that you could leave children who are vulnerable and it is it is exactly if you say it's like in our language you know pay it forward it, the the kindness you extend to others lest allah have mercy on your own children And then verse 10, which we've talked about, that the, the, it is, it's, it's astounding how one often sees people deal with orphans in light of the fact that the Quran could not possibly have emphasized to a greater extent our collective moral responsibility. I mean, from my perspective, we even have gone as far as, you know, we, we plucked out of the Quran or mended, you know, the license to marry two or three or four and completely ignored what the Quran is saying about orphans. You know, if, if Allah is saying, for the sake of orphans, I am willing to create extreme exceptions, well, we took the extreme exceptions and we forgot that for the sake of orphans. I, I mean, if, um, I, I don't know if, if other, I mean, it, Every time I read something, for instance, about the number of orphans in a country like Yemen and the situation they're in, how can, how can Allah possibly bless a people who are far more, I mean, who, who take the easy parts. The easy parts is how, what you put on your head, uh, how you go, you know, what you say about, but ignore what Allah has emphasized to a far greater extent, like our moral responsibility for orphans. Okay.
Then we get into the first Quranic explicit specifications as to shares in inheritance, which is 11 and 12 and there is again a narrative um, that that the wife of Saad ibn Rabi'ah, Saad ibn Rabi'ah was a companion who um, uh, was martyred, uh, I believe in Badr. I believe it was the Battle of Badr. Well, anyway, so his wife came, reportedly came to the Prophet and complained that Saad ibn Rabi'ah had two daughters and that after he was martyred, their their uncle um, took the entire inheritance and refused to give anything to the two daughters. And that the Prophet then ordered the uncle to give um, each daughter one-third and to give the mother one-eighth and then the rest was, I think, distributed to uh, other shares, including the uncle. I don't know if he, I don't remember if he got a share or not. And then you read in tradition books that, and that's when the verse on, in verses on inheritance was were revealed. Um, for many different reasons, I, I, I doubt that that was the incident that precipitated the revelation of the inheritance verses. Although I, I mean, the. Yes, Saad ibn Rabi'ah, at least in according to a number of reports, had two daughters. Other reports say he also had a son. But anyway, um, so it, it, the event could have happened. But whether it was an occasion for revelation is something that I, I, I doubt. Although it might have been a historical event. The law of inheritance... is of sufficient complexity that it becomes a, a, a fairly specialized field. I mean, if you if you uh, just want to, um, if you just go, we have like these these massive charts where you pluck in the the blood relationship and the share, but overall, there are eleven cases where men and women inherit equally. Uh, There are 
four cases or four situations where men inherit more than a woman or twice of what a woman inherits, like brother and sister. There are 14 situations where women inherit more than a man. Um, and there are five situations when um, women will inherit and men don't inherit. So the very fact that the Quran required women to inherit was, I mean, it didn't, it, it wasn't received without considerable fanfare. I mean, it, it's, uh, and there were, m m during the life of the Prophet and after the Prophet, there were considerable amount of resistance. But what was especially, what struck the, the, the context uh, in, in this, this way it rubbed people uh, where the five situations where women it would inherit and ma a man wouldn't, so a, a woman would squeeze out the man in inheritance, and the 14 situations where a woman would inherit more than the share of a man. And for a tribal society, whatever a woman woman inherited was seen as a loss to the collective family or the collective clan or a collective tribe. Because whatever she inherits, she takes and then it goes with her whenever she marries. Um, so that's wealth taken out of the collectivity. What I think in my mind, to my mind, is the significant issue is the fact the intervention in demanding that women be given a share and that as I said in 11 cases men they inherit as much as men in the 14 situations where a woman would actually get a greater share than than a man, and the five situations where a woman would get a share and a man wouldn't. The four situations where a woman would inherit less than a man, usually one half, the, the most clear example of that is siblings. In every one of these situations, the, the, the system in effect, the financial responsibility for the caretaking of a woman rested ultimately with a male relative. So in the old system, a sister if a divorced sister or a widowed sister could bring a cause of action against her brother 
forcing her brother to pay her bills until she remarries. And I think you've heard me say this before. Now, what happens when you no longer have these causes of action which provided we were part of a social welfare system that made the financial obligations incumbent upon women less than those upon a man. It makes sense if a brother and sister, you would give the brother more because the financial obligations upon the brother are greater than the sister, including taking care of his sister. Of course, that begs the question, do we restore the social welfare network system of obligations in order to justify the equal shares? Are we able to restore that system in the modern age? How do you restore the sense of uh, the, the, the cultural sense, the ethos in which a brother would consider, you know, in, 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 because you can, the law can't create an ethos. The law only can reinforce an ethos. But, so even if you give a cause of action to, to sisters against brothers, unless in the vast majority of situations, brothers have a social ethic that tells him, I have to take care of my sister, and if I don't, I can't see, look at myself in the mirror, then the law intervenes in those exceptional cases where, for whatever reason, the social ethics fails to work. But if, you, if the social ethic is missing, having a law is a recipe for failure. Because the law can't possibly go after every brother that fails to do their job. The law reinforces a social ethos. It cannot invent it. So the question that I have about not just the share of sisters vis-a-vis -vis brothers or the, in those four situations where women inherit half of what a man inherits. But in all the Quranic shares, the Quranic shares came with a straightforward logic. First, you pay off the debts. Second, you enforce the will. According to Sunni schools, you are free to will one-third of your property. 
Sunni and non-Sunni schools, that that percentage, you know, some said you are free to will all of your property. Uh, more, the majority of schools said you can't, you're not free to, for someone who's go, who has a share in inheritance, you are limited as to how much property you can give them. Anyway, these are fairly complicated matters of inheritance law. But there is a mismatch between the way inheritance law works today and the social network for supporting parents, supporting um, half-brothers, half-sisters, supporting a brother and sister, do we apply the Quranic shares literally, mechanically, or do we try to understand the philosophy of the Quranic shares and apply the moral substantive philosophy? Again, we are hampered in this conversation by the dark shadow of colonialism, secularism, Westernism. Because I myself, when I hear that, for instance, in Egypt, that they're talking about giving men and women equal shares and not this, the, the differentiating between the inheritance of, man, of a brother and sister. And I keep in mind that the government that's doing this is an authoritarian, despotic government. This reform, quote-unquote, reform in the law is not a product of free and open debate is not a product of uh, symposia and conferences in which religious scholars and all types of legal scholars and sociologists and, and economics experts and anthropologists get together and have open discussion and debate and vet out the issue and then ultimately society emerges on a consensus. No, it is the will of an ignorant military despot who has the education of an absolute idiot, a completely ill-educated, ignorant tyrant who just gets ideas in their mind and decides to earn brownie points with the West by forcing their will and calling them the great reformer, calling themselves a great reformer. Of course, I become indignant and I oppose the reform regardless of whether I like the reform or not, but just because of where it's coming from. But this is where we are stuck, and that is why I see anyone that continue to embrace a despotic paradigm in Muslim societies as shooting Muslims in the foot, because then you are dooming us to this gridlock between 
the dynamics of despotism, where every idea, you know, is looked at with great suspicion and mistrust, and we never go anywhere. But what is remarkable is that even outside the despotic context of Muslim societies, try to open up a conversation about any of these issues among Muslims, let's say, living in the West. You know, good luck. Um, it is immediately you are seen as non-doctrinal, someone who's trying to corrupt Islam, to westernize Islam. But it is, it is fairly, I mean, it is more straightforward than that. Allah decreed shares. Either Allah decreed shares for reasons that only Allah knows, or Allah decreed shares for reasons that are discoverable to humans through a reasonable inquiry. That if we actually study the matter, we can un we can come to discover and understand why Allah said, in this situation, a mother gets this share. In this situation, a father gets this share. In this situation, an uncle gets this share. In this situation, a brother gets this share. And then, if we understand the why, we can look at the philosophy of the shares. And we can ask the question whether in a particular situation, the logic of the law can better be served through adjusting the chairs or through sticking to the traditional shares, to the Quranically stated shares. At least we can have a conversation about that because, I mean, sometimes in practice, I see a share that a share a mother takes and I tell myself, that's not fair. And in other situations, I see a share that a mother takes and I say, well, no, that's, that seems appropriate. Um, these issues, if we are serious about the Quran, deserves vetting, at least vetting. But especially that it is clear that the, the, at least at a bare minimum, the, the project, the Quranic project, was that it was going to categories of people that were have-nots and was making sure that it empowers them. Now, is the Quranic project accomplished and done by the level of empowerment that people received 1,400 years ago? Or do we say that the Quranic project must be ongoing and must be, must be served in every way that we can serve it? But again, you know, despotism and tyranny always corrupts this. Um, what time is it?
950. Okay. Uh, yeah, let's let's stop here. I I didn't realize that. I, I thought uh, Shif was going to say it's it's nine o'clock. It's actually nine fifty where we are. Um. So, yeah, we've had a long session. Let's let's. Uh, so which which verse would do, have we stopped at? What is it? 12 or 13. 13. Oh, okay. 13. So, yeah, inshallah, at this rate, we'll, we'll get done with Surah in a year. Okay. All right. Keep it short. I think people are tired. Okay, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. This was incredible. I mean, I at the break we were like, oh my God, we barely made it out of the single digits of the, of the verses. Um, so I've been frantically scribbling notes, but so let me just highlight very, very quickly. Um, oh my gosh. Okay, so the, you know, the importance of the role of the interpreter, especially when it comes to highly contested issues like sectarian issues, slavery, women, um, the importance of telling us to pay attention to the entire narrative and understand, you know, the, the place of a verse within a surah or the place of the surah within the Quran or the Quran within the Islamic, um, you know, framework of history. Um, that, um, you know, it's, there's so many details that we have to really pay attention to get the whole, the whole message. Um, then the point that Surah Nisa opens up addressing humanity at large and emphasizes a truly egalitarian message. We all come from a single source, um, and it's such a mind-blowing idea that we all come from a single source and that all of this diversity comes from a single source. Um, Allah reminds us to, um, about our responsibility to Allah and our blood family and to orphans, um, and the power of the whole discussion about orphans and how the Quran took on this whole institution of the treatment of orphans even before orphans were really a social issue. Um, and just helping us to understand that whole context was tremendous. Um, the, the institution of the inheritance for orphans, keeping funds separated so there's no mixing, um, really uh, addressing the idea of even um, orphans as a social class and the marriageability of orphans, um, the care of orphans, that we should not be othering them by placing them in orphanages and that orphanages really came about with colonialism, I mean, that whole ethic of how we should treat orphans and that they should be cared for within families. Um, the role of male interpreters and patriarchy um, when it comes to a lot of these verses. Um, and the idea that, that a lot of, um, even the idea of like, should we look at these verses, you know, the question of should society decide at large about the policy when it comes to marriageability and, you know, just understanding that a lot of um, the male interpreters, you know, did not even imagine taking these discourses in another direction and that that's something that really deserves um, to, you know, be reevaluated, that we really can't just take these discourses as they were inherited. Women were not part of the conversation. You know, this is an opportunity for us to really um, re-engage the text, um, especially um, 
you know, your, your point about people need to be qualified and care about the Quran when re-engaging. It can't be just someone that's coming and shooting off the hip and telling you what they think about what should be. Um, extremely valuable that um, the methodology that you presented in approaching these conflicting reports, understanding sort of what is historically surprising, um, really being mindful of whether there are any political ideological biases that might affect the report and how to understand that. Um, <clears throat> and then um, the overall resistance of male privilege, like when this change comes in, there's so much resistance because people obviously, you know, human beings as we see, they don't like change, they don't like to give people rights or think about things um, in a different way. Uh, when it came to issues with uh, marriage of slaves, um, you know, the, the uh, topic of how the, the prophet and the companions um, did not have sex, sex um, outside of marriage with slaves. Um, and the idea of, you know, should we accept um, the values of, of pre-imperial Islam versus imperial Islam and understanding those differences. Um, and most importantly, the role of the moral interpretive agent and um, the ability to um, extract the moral power that is embedded in the text by Allah. So, you know, Allah has embedded the potential to abolish slavery, um, but whether we um, extract that is really up to that moral interpretive agent. Um, on the point of right hands possess and that expression, noting, noticing uh, or noting that the Quran doesn't refer to people or use the term slave, um, but refers to people um, as right hands possess, which is a broader term that uh, does include slave, but also includes other categories of people and that this is um, a potentiality of the text. Like we should engage the idea of, well, who are the right, who are the people that would be considered right hands, that our right hands possess, especially if uh, we were living, you know, in a time where there are no slaves. And um, that's again, re-engaging re the text from a moral uh, interpretive perspective. So as you said, you know, there, a lot of the themes were orphans, that we are all one, um, the management of categories of people, um, the rights of women to dowry, to their dowry, um, the responsibility of people um, to take care of those with who lack mental capacity, being kind, being responsible, um, and having empathy. The the verse about you know imagine that if you have, you know if your children are are these ones. So that's as far as I I was able to scribble. <laughs> we got to the end. You're like okay, that's it. So um, hopefully that's a very fast summary of some of the higher points that we discussed. There's so much, so much gold and um, so much to excerpt as I was saying at the break. Um, amazing, amazing insight. So thank you so much. I'm so excited to continue on. We have to wait for a week. It's like watching your favorite Netflix show. You have to like wait till the next episode a week from now. It's torture. So um, anyway, but inshallah, um, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of the week. Pray for us and um, inshallah, we'll see you next Saturday. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum everyone. Take care.